Welcome to Knoll Country for Old Men, a podcast about board games, tabletop role-playing games, and tabletop war games. I'm the host, Troy, uh, pronouns he, him, and with me today, as always, my co-host. You can call me Ed. My pronouns are they and them. I don't have any particularly snappy jokes for uh, my intro today. Today, we're going to talk about weird monsters in Dungeons & Dragons. We're going to talk about some classic stuff that's been around for many editions, and we're also going to talk about some slightly more recent stuff that is just utterly bizarre. Time to get weird up in here. It's gonna get weird. But first, the hobby segment. So Ed, what have you worked on in the last week? Uh, mostly still working on the models for Marvel Crisis Protocol, the comic book style that I picked out. Seems to be working pretty well. I just finished the Red Skull last night, and he looks phenomenal. Um, other than that, I organized my nerd office so that I can actually get to stuff and not have to unpack a whole bunch of boxes and then repack them once I've found the item that I'm looking for. And been playing, trying to get back into some Blood Bowl since I found a genderqueer Blood Bowl league that I want to get on, get in on, and... I am very bad at Blood Bowl, uh, which would be an understatement of how much I suck at this game. Are we talking about the physical game or the digital game? I'm assuming that because of coronavirus, it's an online league uh, on Blood Bowl 2. I haven't found a whole lot. I've got to try and find the actual tweet where they were talking about it again, and it's been a struggle, but I'm like, I want in on that. And if it was a physical league, that would be awesome but I don't think it's local, so I'm assuming that it's an online thing. I tried online Blood Bowl once on the Xbox, and it's a little bit difficult when you're just kind of like trying to drop in as a casual player. I've played the physical version once and got my ass handed to me. It definitely seems like it's the best fantasy sports game anyone's come up with. Yeah, uh, there's a couple of others that I've seen. Uh, one of them was supposed to be like kind of Blood Bowl hockey, but I never really saw that one get any kind of traction. Guild Ball is the other one. I've heard kind of meh things about Guild Ball, but apparently people out there like it. So Yeah, I watched some people play a game once, and in the hour and a half they were playing, neither of them scored. Well, I guess if they're trying to emulate soccer more than football, I mean, they're kind of accurate on that point, that... Sock games often go long stretches of time without anybody actually doing anything. Yeah, it just didn't seem all that interesting as a game to play if it takes an hour and a half to score. Yeah. And also I know there's been like a Harry Potter Quidditch game of some sort, and yeah, I think there's a few other fantasy sports games out there. Blood Bowl seems to be the one that is the best. Yeah, it's one that I've been trying to get in for a really long time. But just the lack of good player availability due to my work schedule has made that difficult. And then coronavirus happened, so I'm like, well, I might as well just play the computer game version of it and not have to build all the models since I'm not going to be doing any of that anytime soon. But now I'm like, oh, I should probably get an actual Blood Bowl set so that when the coronavirus is hypothetically over, I can actually go and play some Blood Bowl. That's about it as far as my hobby week has gone. With all the, the holiday stuff, it's 
not been as hobby-filled as I had intended. We've been quite a bit busier than initially planned. Yeah, most of my hobby stuff has actually been playing board games. I played some Azul when I went home for Thanksgiving, and then I hung out with some people, and we played Azul, Cash and Guns, and Mysterium. I haven't played Mysterium, but I know that a member of our group has it. A lot of fun, just general sort of low-effort party game, which is always nice if you just want to relax and do that. I'm always torn on the issue of the lightweight party games. It's, I don't know, they're not always something that I'm interested in, but I also know that it's harder to get people into a more in-depth board game that I would normally play. The upside of the, like, rules, light, easy games is that if you have people who are new or who have just never played it before, it does not take a couple hours to, like, explain, get them ready to play at a full level. You can do that in, like, ten minutes. Yeah, that is true. Um, we were at a board game cafe once, and I saw they had a copy of Caverna, which I'd been trying to find for a long time and hadn't been able to find a reasonably priced copy of. So I got really excited. I opened it up, and it was an absolute avalanche of pieces and rule books and boards. And I'm just thinking there's no way that I'm going to be able to teach this to our group in any reasonable amount of time. Uh, that That is the downside of the cool, complicated games, is that teaching them is hard. All right, and I think that's hobby segment. Yep. Today's topic is Weird D&D Monster. Let's talk about some of the weird and unusual monsters from Dungeons & Dragons. Let's talk about where they first appeared, what we like or dislike about them, and uh, why you should use them in your game. Just to make it weird, that's the, that is the reason you should use them. At least that's the reason I would use them. Make it weird. And that may have been the uh, motto of game designers back in 1st edition. With one exception, all of these creatures showed up in 1st edition. This first one is not the exception, and it's a actually a pretty common monster, and that's the Displacer Beast. Yeah, for some reason, a cat with tentacles just never struck me as weird. Just kind of more as like, hey, it's a fantasy beastie. Except it's not a fantasy beastie. And I'll get into that. So the Displacer Beast is a six-legged panther with two long tentacle whip arm things that grow from its shoulders, sometimes depicted as having sucker cups, sometimes as having spikes on the end. They're evil monsters, they have an ability that, like, warps light around them, so they appear in two places at once, and this causes, like, a mischance in Dungeons & Dragons terms. But they didn't come from fantasy. They came from a science fiction story, specifically the story Black Destroyer by A.E. Van Voigt, published in 1939 in, uh, I think, Weird Tales magazines. It was one of the first Golden Age science fiction stories, and it's about a group of humans who land on a distant planet, and they're doing an archaeological survey, and they meet this big panther-like animal on the planet, and it's telepathic and it seems to be the only living thing on the planet and it like wanders up to the ship just kind of hangs out with them for a while and then starts murdering the crew it's like alien but cats it's so much like alien that a van Voigt sued the producers of alien when that came out that's rough so it's a sci-fi monster and pretty much the description and some of the early art 
came in that were in the magazine are almost exactly what the displacer beast looks like it was pulled straight from this and it's kind of interesting because you don't get that so much dungeons and dragons usually it's all fantasy stuff although we'll talk about another one that isn't quite fantasy in a bit so yeah displacer beasts they're cool i think they could be used more i mean they're pretty weak for the most part uh they're only like challenge rating two or three maybe that's kind of surprising for something that looks so menacing it's that they don't have a lot of like defenses they're not so big that they'd have a ton of hit points they don't have like armored skin they don't have an ability other than like the thing that makes them harder to hit and they don't have that much in terms of attacks and they don't it's not like they have magical abilities or anything other than being hard to hit but they have shown up in every edition of dungeons and dragons since the first one somebody liked that science fiction story and was like we should just use that just rip it off it'll be fine it it was so they used it, it's become sort of a Dungeons & Dragons iconic thing, it's shown up in 1st edition, 2nd edition, 3rd edition, 4th edition, 5th edition, various artwork styles. It's a decent low-level enemy, it does have the cool thing of their fur is sometimes made into cloaks of displacement, which give you the uh, ability to kind of create an image of yourself somewhere else to add, give you that hit chance thing. That's interesting. The current history for them in universe is that they are from the Feywild and were trained by the Unseelie Court or something. That has changed from previous editions. Uh, it used to be something different. But that's, if you're using them, you know, they could show up with elves, especially evil elves. Honestly, they would be cool to have with dark elves, perhaps, with drow. Would make sense. It seems kind of like an underdarky type monster that you would have. Yeah, although they're not typically associated with the Underdark. I guess if you were having drow that weren't spider-focused, they would be a good companion. Oh yeah, that's right. Drow, they like everything to be spiders. Yeah, it needs another two legs for that. <laughs> I guess you could technically count the tentacles as two legs. I guess. Um, but yeah, Displacer Beasts. They're cool, they're weird, they're a sci-fi creature and not a fantasy creature. And uh, yeah, I like them. I think they're fun. And now the next one, also something that has more appendages than you would normally give it credit for. Is this my favorite one? The Flail Snail. Ah, not quite. Not quite. We'll get to your favorite one. Again, first appeared in first edition, and then has shown up again in more recent stuff, fourth edition and fifth edition. They're giant snails. They have four or five tentacles with spikes on the end coming out of their head, and this giant colorful shell they're slow they only like move 10 15 feet around they kind of like crawl around and eat whatever's in front of them they're giant snails really the tentacles on their heads can whack things pretty hard and the giant colorful shell has like anti-magic properties so if you shoot magic at it sometimes it'll reflect it and also it can do like a burst of light from the shell causing like blindness or damage to people around it depending on the addition um, and the shell is worth money because you can turn it into like an anti-magic or magical reflecting shield or grind it into powder for use in potions and stuff. But they're, they are super weird. They look bizarre. They're giant snails as tall as a man. Yeah, there's 
theoretically, earth or some form of elemental uh, related to like earth elementals. Snail elemental. Snail elemental. Yeah. I just had the the image of a giant labyrinth made of like piles of salt that somehow the player characters have to go through, but there's also a giant flail snail in there. Yeah, they're not super vulnerable to salt, but that would be a good way to like keep them in because they're they're so slow that as an actual active threat you really have to kind of stick your players someplace where they either have to confront it or find some kind of novel way to avoid it. Otherwise, they're just going to be like, well, I'm going to walk around this snail or just wait for it to drive by. Yeah, I'd say that if you're using it in a thing, you either need to, like, have it guarding something. There's a flail snail that's going back and forth in front of a door that they have to, like, pick the lock on, so... And it's a complicated lock, so it's going to take them a while. So someone has to deal with the snail while somebody else picks the lock or whatever. Or they have to just kill the snail and then do it. Call them the security snail. It's a, Yeah, security snail. Or something where they're sent to like hunt it down because an intact shell is worth a lot of money. That could be an interesting encounter. Yeah, and some of the stuff can be used to make potions, which are important, which are useful and stuff, so... You know, get hired to go find one and capture it or kill it so that they can use it. In which case, it's the center of the thing. Uh, you could also maybe have one where they're trying to go get some flail snail eggs for someone who wants to start a flail snail farm. Flail snail farm. I like that idea. Perhaps just a wizard who wants flail snail eggs for reasons he's not going to make clear to you. So you have to go and fight a couple of them to get a clutch of eggs. Just don't ever bother asking a wizard why they're doing anything. Yeah, um, I don't need a reason. A wizard did it. They're so weird and cool. I've used them in adventures before. And now we're going to talk about the oldest weird D&D monster. Catabolas? Cardaboss? Yeah, Cataboss. I don't, I don't even think I've heard of that one. It's an interesting one. It's described as a miserable mix of buffalo, dinosaur, warthog, and hippopotamus. What? Lives in swamps or wastelands. It's a myth mythological creature described by Pliny the Elder in, uh, like, a Roman travelogue kind of thing, um, where he talks about it as being, uh, in living in Ethiopia and being like a buffalo boar that has a deadly gaze. I think Pliny's been taking too many, uh, whiffs off the old natural gas vent there. Yeah, or maybe uh, that, the lead line pipes finally got to him. Yeah, lead'll do that to you. Yeah, it almost certainly got into Dungeons and Dragons through uh, something called the Book of Imaginary Beings, which was published in the 1800s, I believe, as like a col a collection of mythological creatures. And Gygax was known to draw from that book for inspiration for monsters. This thing has shown up in. First edition and every edition since, on and off. It's a, like I said, it's a weird sort of horror show swamp monster thing. Yeah, it shows up in 5th edition in Volo's Guide to Monster. Uh, that explains why I haven't seen it. Yeah, it's got, you know, it's a giant monstrosity. It 
has a stench thing going on. You know, if you get close to it, you have to get take a saving throw or be poisoned. And then it, it literally has a death ray where it, if it can see someone, it can just like do necrotic damage to them by looking at them. It's got a little bit of Beholder in there somewhere. Yeah, it's a creature of disease and decay. It's basically an evil swamp monster. And it's essentially, you know, one of the few African mythology creatures that has had a long hold in Dungeons and Dragons. That is one thing that I'd like to see more just kind of in general in tabletop RPGs is stuff uh, from African mythology or African writers of fantasy material because 99% of all the fantasy stuff that you come across, at least here in the United States, either going to be something from Western mythology or like uh, East Asian, Chinese or Japanese mythology but not so much from Africa or South America. And I think uh, seeing some more of that would be very interesting in the gaming space. We get some Egyptian stuff, but that, that's been around for, yeah. Yeah, some non-Egyptian African mythology, because we've got it. Everybody's kind of familiar vaguely with the Egyptian stuff already. We don't need more mummies. Actually, we could use more mummies, but different types of mummies. So the Catabolasset. Weird evil stinky swamp monster that look that you know looks can kill they're uh they're weird and ugly and terrifying and smell and then they smell terrible so uh yeah throw them at your players sounds like a bad time had by all yeah they make a great foreboding you're hired by a village because something is in the swamp and anyone who goes in dies or comes out sick and terrified. Um, you know, they, they're a great foreboding swamp monster kind of thing. And also, like, one that lives under a bridge somewhere would definitely be a problem that would have to be solved by adventurers. They're interesting in that um, they don't have a lot of other usage that I can really think of. They're, they're very much outdoor beast kind of things. I don't think you'd find one in a dungeon. Unless it's like, a, uh, it sounds like something that maybe a black dragon would keep around. Maybe. The powerful black dragon might have one around as a pet or a guard dog kind of thing. A large, terrifying guard dog. Yeah, and I mean, you can always add other stuff to it to make it more to hone in on your own thing. Um, maybe there's a ship that got wrecked in like a salt marsh somewhere. And uh, that ship had important cargo and now is the lair of one of these things ta-da get a uh, big witcher vibes off of that one yeah that does seem like a witchery thing but yeah it's also a classic quest thing the witcher is built on so much of classic role-playing game kind of background especially the games the next one is again a weird classic and it's the other one that's not really fantasy the frog hemoth they're elephant-sized amphibious predators with four tentacles and three eyes. They look like giant frogs, except instead of arms, they've got tentacles and they've got a little stalk with three eyes poking out of it. They showed up in first edition and in second, third, and fifth. Uh, as far as I can tell, they didn't show up in fourth edition at all. At least not in the Dungeons and Dragons universe. The thing is, they first showed up in the module Expedition to the Barrier Peaks. 
Now, for those of you who don't know, which is me, Expedition to the Barrier Peaks is a very unusual module. The The gist of it is the king sees Comet Falls in the Barrier Peaks and there's a flash of light and strange like lights in that area. And the king dispatches a party of adventurers to go find out what's going on. And you get there and you find a crashed UFO. Characters go inside and it's a big dungeon in this crashed spaceship. And it includes a bunch of weird monsters. The frog hemoth, um, uh, like mushroom men, just just a bunch of stuff. And it's lit- it is straight up aliens. You can find a ray gun. You can find like laser guard stuff. And you're supposed to be fantasy adventurers like wandering through this going, what the hell is this? <laughs> and that's where the frog hemoth first shows up. So it's kind of intended to be not a fantasy thing, but a science fiction thing. A weird alien frog monster with tentacles and eye tendrils. And a spiked tongue that like goes out like a frog and grabs people. And it's just a giant beast. It just eats people. Now, it's kind of changed over the years because Expedition to the Barrier Peaks was just one adventure. And it's this monster has shown up in further editions. So in 5th edition, they still exist, and they're worshipped as gods by the Bullywugs, the, like, frog people. Non-poison dart frog people, because there's multiple types of frog people in D&D. They even got a miniature for them in 2017 as part of the D&D Collectors series, which looks pretty cool, I have to say. Nice, I'll have to check that out. I haven't seen it yet. Yeah, it's a pretty solid-looking miniature, and I imagine it would be fun to plop that down on a table and just be like, yeah... You're dealing with a giant frog monster that has tentacles and a tongue that'll eat you. And maybe it's from outer space. It seems like UFOs are becoming a more common trend in D&D, especially with the uh, increased prominence of illithids. The idea of UFOs in your fantasy don't seem to be quite as pun intended alien as they used to be. Well, I mean, remember, Expedition to the Barrier Peaks was the first edition module. It was pretty early on that space was a thing that happened in Dungeons and Dragons. And then second edition Spelljammer is when the um, Illithids were, like, made more um, spacefaring. So this is not a recent thing. It's just recently that it's come back. Hmm. Because 3rd and 4th edition didn't really dwell on the fact that Spelljammer existed. Mm-hmm. They kind of glossed over it as much as possible. They shouldn't have. Spelljammer's awesome. It, I agree. I like Spelljammer. I also like Planescape. And we'll get to that. Uh, not quite yet, but soon. Because next is your favorite. Does it start with an R and then move on to an M? It starts with an R and ends with an R. The Roving Mauler. So, so dumb. I don't know why I love it so much, but I just love the Roving Mauler. Yeah, the Roving Mauler is the most recent of the monsters on this list, because it was only introduced in 3.5, in the Tome of Magic. It is a lion pinwheel. It is a lion's head and five legs sticking out in, like, all directions. And then it has another head on the other side. So it has two lion heads and five legs that just spin around. So awesome. 
It rolls around on the legs. It hunts in packs, apparently. And as far as I can tell, it has not shown up in any subsequent edition. Yeah, 3.5 is the only reference material that I could find for the roving mauler, which I really want it to come back if for nothing other than just the sheer stupidity of it. Yeah, it, it, it it's a lion pinwheel. It looks so bizarre. I liked the cracked article's description of it being uh, somebody who overdrew a microbrewery logo. Yeah, it's it's bizarre. I it, it only showed up once in one edition and still makes all these lists of dumbest D and D monsters or weirdest D and D monsters. It's um it's pretty weird. If I was gonna use it in a campaign, it would have to be like. The first sign that you're approaching the tower of a wizard who is very much into, like, creating weird magical beasts would be a pack of roving maulers. Yeah, that, could, that would work. That or, like, a knight who has a roving mauler emblem on his shield and tells the tale of how he slew one and you're not sure if he's making shit up or not. <laughs> really, I'm not sure how you would use something this bizarre... In a campaign game, in a standard campaign of D&D. It would seem almost kind of like a like a combat puzzle because of how it moves, how it rolls in that pinwheel fashion. And really all it's going to do is just try and run down the players. So trying to fight against that could be an interesting experience because normally when you have your combat... It's either going to be something that's standing far away from you shooting at you or running up trying to smack you in the face. But if you're trying to have to fight something that's constantly moving, that could be an interesting scenario. A little? I, I, I think it... I just don't know what to do with it from a story perspective. It's so weird and so out of place that, that a, a, a wizard making strange shit is kind of where I go firstly. It, it could also be, you know, some magical artifact that's warping all the creatures in the area and the pack of lions got turned into roving maulers and i don't know the pack of zebras got turned into something even stranger you could probably fit it into something like planescape where the whole setting is just weird yeah you could throw it into the outlands and planescape without a problem but that's planescape and speaking of Planescape, let's talk about the final monster on our list of weird D&D monsters that you should use in your games more. The Modron. I've seen them once, and it, it was a very entertaining side quest. Too bad we didn't get actually, actually get to finish it. So Modrons are the embodiment of the universal principle of order. They showed up in 1st edition, uh, serving on the elemental plane nirvana which was the plane of order at the time they are strictly hierarchical they go from modrons to pentadrons uh, pentadrones they are kind of based off the book flatland in that they the smaller ones are a sphere and then it's like a two and a three and a yeah, so the smallest one is a sphere. The next one is like two boxes. The next one up is triangle shape thing. 
the next one is a cube with wings, and then the next one is like a starfish with legs. And they have a strict hierarchy where they only talk to ones directly above or directly below or like at their level. Like a mono drone would only talk to a duo drone, and a duo drone would only talk to a mono drone or a tri drone or other duo drones, but nothing higher up. It's they're weird. They're like strictly hierarchical. They are totally like organized and lawful and orderly, and they're ruled by like another series of like super powerful drone things. They're interesting, and they didn't get a whole lot of lore in first edition. They were just sort of this is what lives in the plane of order. In second edition, they renamed Nirvana to Mechanos, and it turned into like a giant clockwork plane. And these guys got a lot of lore because they kind of became an integral part of the planescape setting. One of the big uh, plane, one of the big things about them is the Great Modron March, where every two hundred and eighty-nine years. Uh, a bunch of them set out on a pilgrimage, journey, trip, whatever, where they go in a big circle and, like, wander through all the other planes in, like, a giant group. And there is a planescape adventure called The Great Modron March, where it happens a couple of years early and everyone freaks out about it. And the adventurers, like, go along with it and try to find out what's going on. They also have this bizarre thing where when one dies, Weird. a Modron from a lower level gets instantly promoted to fill that spot, and a new Modron at the lowest level gets produced to like keep the numbers the same. The ultimate bureaucracy. They exactly. They are the ultimate bureaucracy. It's it's very they're very strange and very weird and very second edition, and I love them. You can also have rogue Modrons, uh, where typically, like, the Quadrone level, where they're kind of human intelligence and human ability to do things, sort of go insane by Modron standards and stop being connected to the pure order that they have and start to do other things. Uh, typically, Modrons would see this as being killed and they get replaced. In 2nd and 3rd edition, you could have them as player characters, but they still had to be lawful. Um, even a rogue, insane Modron would not be a chaotic creature. <laughs> they were too, too much order. I can't handle all this order. And I, I think they're super interesting... The variety of them, the having like five different versions, uh, makes for a lot of options for like levels of combat and stuff and different challenges, especially because they usually operate in groups as well. So second edition was their heyday. They were a big part of Planescape. They disappeared almost entirely in third edition uh, for reasons unknown. And most of the stuff kind of got replaced with Inevitables, which were clockwork angel kind of things that upheld the laws of the universe. And nobody talked about Motrons at all. But then they came back in 4th edition. And in 5th edition, they are in the normal monster manual. Huzzah, they've been promoted. They have been promoted. 
They're all quadrones now. Wait, no. No, they're not. Yeah, they are cool. And there's all sorts of things you can do with them. The Great Modron March is a cool idea to just have a swarm of these that just pass through. And everyone's just like, what the hell? Why are there these bizarre mechanical flesh creatures from an outer plane? Not even attacking, just like marching through the area traveling. Also, they act kind of to counteract things that are chaotic. So if there's a planar void or a planar incursion of like stuff from the elemental plane of chaos, Limbo then you could certainly have Modrons show up to try to stop it and not really realize what they're doing is harming local people or... Obviously, they're going to strictly follow orders and it's going to be very hard to convince them to not do what they've been told to do. They are so strictly hierarchical. Sounds like a good uh, test of problem-solving for your players. I suppose you could convince them that They've carried out their orders even when their orders haven't actually been carried out. If you can kind of trick them, that might work. But they're, they're very hard to reason with because they are so, like, bound to what doing things in a very particular way. They are the ultimate lawfuls. They are lawful lawful. Does that, does that bridge into, like, lawful stupid? For the lower level ones, it definitely does. Um, mono drones and duo drones are intelligence 4 and 6, respectively. So they're going to carry out lawful orders with no regard for what's going on around them. I'd say that the quad drones and pentadrones are smart enough to, you know not be lawful stupid, but they are going to be lawful order. So they, they're, they're not very flexible with what they do. And of course, rogue Motrons are entertaining as hell, uh, both as PCs and as non-player characters. Never thought of having them as player character. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a thing that you could do. Again, you'd probably want to do it as a quadrone because that's the one that is mostly equivalent to a human as npcs they're interesting because you know you can still have them be in a position of order and law just outside of the strict regimen of mechanus um i did one that was a lawyer that dealt in contracts between various dragons um because everyone trusted the modron the being of order to, like, uphold and follow the law and make sure that these contracts were fair to everybody. Adhere to the letter of the contract. Those dragons will be unstoppable with the law on their side. You could also have a rogue one that was acting as a judge for some community. That would be similarly entertaining where, you know, you're taken before the Modron judge and it, in, you know, only follows the law to the letter. And you have to have your players, like, do illegal shenanigans to get out of it. Follows the law to the letter, typos included. Yes, typos included would be even better. You know, your players have to figure out that, oh, 
the there's a comma here, so it's breaking and entering. And we only did one of those things, so you can't punish us. <laughs> that sounds like classic D&D shenanigans. It does, and Modrons are great for that sort of classic role-playing aspect of the game. I like Modrons, and I think you should use them in your games. Huzzah! They, they're great for any sort of, like, planar incursion or planar events, and especially if you're doing a Planescape-type game, use some Modrons. They're fun. Any setting is improved by adding a weird robot-flesh hybrid thing that only cares about laws. Are you to say that any any setting is automatically improved by adding some Planescape in there? I mean, yeah. In part because every setting already has Planescape in there. It just doesn't know it yet. <laughs> That's the benefit of being of Planescape being a setting specifically about a magical city that has portals connecting it to every other plane of existence in the universe. Planescape, it's good. Modrons, they're good. Roving Maulers, they're lion pinwheels. Proghemoths. Yep, use those. Use them at every single opportunity. Forget kabolds and gnolls, just roving maulers everywhere. I, I, I don't agree with this statement. That is not an opinion held by this podcast. That is not the official position of the Knoll Country for Old Men podcast. Yes, it is. Froghemoths. Giant frogs are better than small frogs. Catabolus. For when you need a terrifying swamp monster. Flail snail. Just, just flail snail. I, I don't have anything to say there. Displacer beasts. Cool history. Maybe have them hunt in packs if they're not... If your players are too good at killing them. And remember that in the original story, it was very smart and got the humans to like it before it started killing them. So maybe try that. Maybe try one that try that the players could use as a pet before it turns on them and starts murdering them. And that is weird D&D monsters. Woo! I like it weird. So our last segment on the podcast is Board Game Corner. Mysterium is a board game for, I believe, up to eight players. Yeah, eight players. It's Reverse Clue. Seven of the players take on the roles of psychic investigators who have come to a creepy haunted house to determine the identity of a killer, where the murder took place, and what the murder weapon was. All the things you get from Clue. The other player is the ghost who knows all these things and communicates them only using these cards of, like, weird, surreal art. They can't talk. They can only, like, hand out these cards to the player, to the uh, investigators. And each investigator... Ghost dictionary. Yeah, well, except the cards are already drawn, and they're cool and colorful and surreal and weird and have different elements on them, some of which match the stuff that's on the, like, artwork for the people and the places and the murder weapons, and some of which doesn't. So it's very much about interpreting what you've been given by the ghost. The ghost hands out cards to everyone. Then there's a timer. People, like, reveal all their cards and d can discuss what they think their thing is. And then, you know, if they're correct, they move on to the next thing. Uh, you start with people and then move to place, then move to weapon. 
So it's fun to be the investigator because you get these weird cards and you try to like interpret and determine if, oh, does this card having red on it means that it's the person wearing the red hat? Or does the fact that this card has a cannon in it mean it's the person who uh, was a soldier? Like that sort of thing. You have to guess and like work your way through the cards and try and understand what the ghost intends by these cards and you'll have a limited time to like discuss it with other people before the timer runs out you put a little thing on there and then the ghost tells you whether you were right or wrong you move on to the next stage and once everybody's gotten through this there's kind of a rounds limit but once everybody's gotten through this you do a final round where the ghost picks one of the collections of person place and thing that everyone's made and that is the, like, actual correct killer location and weapon. The ghost then deals out three cards face down that have to represent this. And then they are flipped, and depending on how many, like, how quickly you got it right in the beginning and some other factors, players get to see a certain number of these three cards and vote on which thing which of the options they think is the actual killer. And they don't get to discuss it. So this is really, again, the interpretation thing, but taken to a level of no discussion. You might not get to see all the cards. It, it's very... It's much harder and much... A little tenser, because you're gonna... You only win if a majority of people vote for the correct one. Sounds like the kind of game that I would not be that great at anything that involves like social deduction or like interpretation i'm generally not too great at those games yeah it's not social deduction but it's very much art interpretation so i suspect you'd be better as an investigator than you would as the ghost because the ghost has to spend a lot of time looking at these weird cards and trying to connect them to things and trying to think about the investigators and what the investigators are going to think when they get these cards and what they will make connections with. There's a lot of like thought process involved in that. Yeah. Just off the bat, it kind of reminds me of uh, Dixit, which has a similar, yes, similar ish mechanic. And I was not a big fan of that one. Could have just been playing it on the wrong day, but was, wouldn't be my first pick of games off the shelf. Yeah, I'd say it's a lot like Dixit, but with a much stronger, like, game aspect. With, you know, real... There's a win-loss condition, there's a progress meter kind of thing going on. Um, but it is very similar to Dixit, and you could swap the cards between Dixit and Mysterium without much difficulty. Although I think the uh, Mysterium cards are a little more, like, creepy horror. More spooky is more good. And I think that's the podcast. Anything you want to plug here, Ed? Join a union. Support your local board game store. Uh, if you want to follow me on Instagram and see what I'm doing with my Marvel comic book stuff, uh, you can follow me at Anna Madness. That's A-N-A Madness. Um, I do a lot of board game stuff there. Yeah, and if you want to follow the podcast on our social medias, we are... On Twitter at at Knoll Country, and on Instagram at, again, Knoll Country. That's no spaces.